1: planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton.
0: Welcome
2: everybody to today's episode of Getting In A College Coach Conversation, which really, as I look at what we're going to be talking about today, really should be called You've Gotten In, Now What? A College Coach Conversation. Uh, one big thing on the mind of every parent with a child about to head off to college, and I know as if you listen to the show uh, semi-regularly, you know that I have a stepson who's heading off in the fall. But one thing that we are thinking about a lot is paying that bill Uh, And Jean Mahan, who joined us a while back to discuss tips for reducing college costs and also had some ideas for how to determine the value of a college, she's back to talk through parent financing options. She's going to be with us in a little while, but first, I'm very excited to welcome two colleagues who are experts in both college admissions and finance and sending kids away to college. Uh, Ken and Dick's son made the transition just last year, and Kathy Ruby has seen both of her children start college. One's already graduated, and the second is a junior. Thanks so much for being here, Ken and Kathy.
3: Sure. Glad my to be here.
2: So I guess, you know, my first question for both of you is really... Where do you start with that transition? What I, I remember when I was um, getting ready to, I think the month before I left for college, one of the things that my mother did was start a little collection of things she thought I would need. So if they were having a sale on the deodorant that I used, she'd go out and buy five of them and add it to this basket she had created. That was her way of starting that transition. And as people who've recently done this, I guess my first question for both of you would be, what do you think the first thing is to do to even start thinking about it? Who I wants to take that? Start? <laughs> um, sure, I'll start.
3: Um, well, and, and of course, I'm the finance person, so I'm going to be focusing more on the sort of the bureaucracy of it all. How about that? All right, that works. <laughs> so one Great. of the first things to, to understand when you start thinking about the things that are going to have to be done over the summer, there are the things you're going to need to transition, but uh, but then there are things you're going to need to do that the college is going to want you to do. So the first thing, I guess I would, I would converse with your kids to, to make sure that they're checking their college email accounts, because now that they've deposited, that college has Definitely given them an email address, and that's how the college is going to communicate with them throughout the summer. And then also know that um, the college is actually going to communicate primarily with the student and not with you. Um, because when students get to college, their records are protected by something called FERPA, which is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. And so, what that essentially means is that it's the student's record, everything, you know, grades, the bill. Um, classes, all of that is the student's record, and they have to give you permission to see it and to interact with it. So be aware that the, the school's going to communicate with the student, and then you'll need to be communicating with your student about what you need to do to get access to certain things. So so that's the purely business side of things, I guess. I'll let Kenan talk about what he would think would be the first thing to do from the admissions perspective or the academic
4: perspective. Okay. Kenan. Yeah, I would, um Good question, and I think that uh, there's a lot of things that you could, that you could talk about. And in the month of May and early June, parents are going to have a ton of mail that comes from that you know from that selected college, and um, and it's easy to kind of put off, but it's something that you do want to make sure that you wade through as soon as, as it comes in. One of the first things that uh, that we had to um, kind of uh, deal with, I guess you would say, is um, is orientation. And for us, orientations took place over the summer. It Mm -hmm. wasn't a program that was the first uh, week before classes in the fall. So we – and there are several sessions that that you could go to during the summer. And one of the pieces of advice that I would suggest is that choose the earlier sessions if possible. And part of the reason for that, and we kind of found this out the hard way, is that classes are going to fill up in those earlier sessions. So mm-hmm. in order to get the class schedule that you would prefer, you need to be in those earlier orientation sessions so that you can select those classes before they start to close down. Um, so selecting earlier orientations can have its own reward, and um, and you might also want to see and coordinate with a potential roommate, um, if, if the roommate is known at that point, that um, that you're going to that orientation session, so if there's any way to connect earlier, you can do that. So those would be two things that, that I would suggest. The other thing that I would suggest is that if you're looking to, um, during that orientation period when you're selecting classes, also take care of AP credits or IB credits that, um, that you think in advance, because it often will take two to three weeks for um, either uh, the college board or IBO, to send the scores to the school so they have time to review them prior to the orientation period. So that's and, something that you might want to jump on fairly early as well.
2: And I think there's a really important point that you just made here. When you apply to the colleges, for the most part, in fact, I know of almost no colleges, I know there's one or two, that require IB scores or AP scores in advance as you know, sort of official scores sent from the test Organization, testing organization. But when you're looking to get credit, that's when you have to have those official scores sent, and you can't overlook that. They're not going to just lift them off the transcript, or I'm sorry, off of the application. You need to send mm-hmm. them from the official um, testing source.
4: Exactly, gotcha. exactly. And, you know, the College Board says right on their website that it takes two weeks uh, for the, the scores to get to their destination, and I think it's about $15 per score that you would. Um, that you would need to have in order to to send the scores out, but it's only for that destination college where you deposit that you'll need to send the official scores. Correct.
2: Exactly. And fifteen dollars yeah. is a sort of a small trade off if you are getting credit that uh, would cost you significantly more at the college. Absolutely. And can so, I just add one thing to that? Absolutely. Too?
3: Is that- It may also, getting those scores there will impact what you might end up registering for in your first semester, because once the scores get to the college, then the academic departments have to review them and decide what credit you are getting and what prerequisite might be waived and all those kinds of things. So it is important to get them there as soon as possible.
2: And, you know, the other thing that you mentioned, well, you mentioned FERPA, um, Kathy, but I know there is a lot of other paperwork on both sides, admissions and finance. So what are some other paperwork that parents should be looking to get done over the summer, looking for, first of all, and then making sure they complete?
3: Well, I think just on the finance side of things, if you're planning to borrow student or parent loans, um, June and July is when the college will be expecting you to complete the rest of the paperwork on those. So, you've already accomplished the first step if you're getting federal loans by completing the FAFSA, but then over the course of the summer, your student will fill out a master promissory note on the Department of Education's website. Um, They'll do an entrance counseling session where they read about the loan and how it has to be repaid, and they take a quiz, and then the school gets notified. Um, So, the school will be sending your student information on how to take those steps. And that usually happens in June or July. And, and then if you're arranging financing as a parent, that would also happen in the June-July time frame. Many colleges, when it comes to these finance sort of things you have to do, they'll often have a checklist. Um, and again, it'll come to your student. So you'll want to make sure you're communicating with your student about that. Another real important one is health forms. So there are, you know, your student probably will have to have a physical and have to have vaccinations or appropriate forms filled out. Um, And those usually have a deadline somewhere in the June, July timeframe. So there's some more, you know, paperwork that has to happen. And of course, the bill itself is going to come in the summer, usually not due until later in the summer. But most colleges will try to get their bill out sometime in the beginning to middle of July for a fall start um, so though there will be that that you'll you'll be wanting to anticipate and when you get that first bill um, and I know we've talked about sort of understanding the bill and we'll probably do a a, a next whole week, segment on that. We're going to
2: actually talk about it next week. So next thanks for <laughs> for uh, previewing the next week's show. Everybody, come back for that. So anyway, um, well, but and actually, but let me just
3: add one thing to watch for is whether the college has billed you for their health insurance plan, because most colleges require that students have health insurance. Mm -hmm. And the way they make sure that happens is that they bill everyone for it, and then you have to opt out by a very strict deadline, and that's usually sometime in June or July also. So if your child's still going to be covered under your insurance, that's great, but you want to make sure that you've opted out of the college's plan so you don't pay for it.
2: Right, so you're not paying for it twice. And I think there's an overwhelming message here that if every parent isn't taking away, they should, which is you need to make sure that your student is either very communicative with you or granting you permission to get these materials sent directly to you because... Uh, there's a lot of stuff coming, and it could easily fall through the cracks if you have a child who doesn't check email or isn't great about sharing email that they get with you. I know that that from time to time has been an issue with us, uh, and I, and it's making me think I need to talk about this when, when I get home today. So <laughs> thanks for that; I appreciate it. So what else? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> go for other it, Ken. One
4: thing. Um, just to talk about in terms of the, uh, the health insurance, just to tack this on is, and this is something that we experienced, is that the health insurance and dental may be very separate um, entities. And, um, and what we had to do was we had to get um, more, uh, we had to have proof of enrollment for the dental plan, which we did not have to provide for the health plan. Um, so there may be different procedures for your dental plan than there are for your health plan. And that's just something to, to be thinking about as well.
2: That's so strange. Yeah. I wonder why. All right. So, um, Kenan, what about, uh, you mentioned getting credit for um, APs and having those scores sent. Is there anything else mm-hmm. that families need to do beyond just having those um, official scores sent to the college? Um, do colleges all do it the same way? What's your sense of that?
4: Um, no, they don't all do it the same way. And i um, learned this from my own experience <laughs> but also from the different schools. Um, and so, one of the things that uh, that they'll explain in that initial wave of, of information that comes to you and your student is uh, is what those procedures are, are going to be, and um, some schools will be able to award the credit for the fall semester. Many schools will actually wait until the spring semester in order to award the AP credit, so it doesn't actually go onto your transcript or become part of your official record until the spring. Um, then the other thing that I think is pretty important that, um, that students can do uh, earlier on, and it's going to be one of the initial steps, is um, oftentimes you're going to get a questionnaire for a roommate, um, and it just asks a lot about your kind of the habits and you know, whether you stay up late or get up early, if you're, you know, if you're messy or if you're clean, et cetera, and, um, and some of your personal habits so that they can make a good match between the two. And one of the experiences that I had at Swarthmore, and we this is pretty much a perennial issue in the fall, is that um either students didn't fill that out truthfully or someone else filled it out for them. Hmm. And so gee, um, I wonder if that someone else would be. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and and I've heard all sorts of things from, well, I put myself down as clean so that, um, you know, my roommate, if they're a clean person, since I'm pretty messy, uh, they'll clean up for me, you know, and you hear all sorts of kind of rationales like that. You want to, in order to minimize the potential for conflict between you and your roommate, you want to be as honest as possible about what those uh, habits are. So don't try to game the system or anything of that nature. If you want to do it well, um and avoid those conflicts and be as honest as possible on that questionnaire.
2: And and are you finding that a lot of schools are are doing those types of questionnaires? I know that when I was at Penn there was an attempt at roommate matching that was ended up being abandoned and the, the general sense was they weren't finding any fewer problems being reported as a result of roommate matching and it was a lot of time it took a lot of time and energy and they just decided some kids are going to be happy with their roommates and some aren't, and we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing. And I, I was just, I'm curious if you guys see different things at the schools that your kids are enrolled at or, um, or were enrolled at, or if you've heard different things.
3: Well, um, my daughter's at a fairly large undergraduate institute, well, sort of a medium size, and theirs was fairly do-it-yourself. hmm so, um, you know, there was a deadline and you could go into the pool of people who were looking for roommates. And I think there were many kids who might have had prior connections or whatever it might have been. Um, so it it was sort of uh, you fill out the questionnaire, but then you try to you, you do your own filtering and hmm. you do your own matching as opposed to someone at the institution doing it for you.
2: That's interesting. I wonder how I would have felt about it, that. I don't know. It didn't work very well, I will say that. I bet it didn't. I, You know, isn't it almost a rite of passage to have a lousy roommate freshman year? I sort of feel that way. I don't know. I have some good stories with all due respect to my freshman year first semester roommate, but we weren't a good match, and now I have fun mm-hmm. stories to tell about that. But I don't know, Kenan, did you guys have a different experience with your son? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean,
4: I, I think it, the the matching process went fairly smoothly. Um, they certainly were not best friends, but um but they coexisted pretty well together. So I think that they you know, and it may be just luck. I mean, you know, there's right. there's certainly an element to that you just can't accom- you know, can't really um, reconcile. But I think at Swarthmore, they really put a lot of time and effort into trying to get those matches right. And they had a, a free, they were pretty proud of the of the record that they had and and the um the few students that would ask for that switch every every year so um so I think there are some schools and usually it's the smaller schools that that really put a lot of time and effort into the matching process and you know at a place like a Penn or you know a place like you know virginia tech you, there's no way with that volume that you can do it so it's it's a little bit more kind of standard um mm-hmm. Kind of questions on on the questionnaire that they match up with, but that brings up another question um, that you know, Kathy, you mentioned that a lot of people seem to have prior connections, and mm-hmm. um, and usually how that works is that if the two students request one another and it's a mutual request, then they'll um, then they'll uh, put them together for a roommate.
2: Right, And then what if it's not, right? Because I've seen that happen too, where two people agree they're going to be roommates and one actually follows through and puts that person down and the other person doesn't tell that one and and says, I don't really want to be that person's roommate. That's a little (laughs) awkward, but... What are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of kids, um, college is a fresh start. It's uh, it's an adventure, and for some students, it's it's a little scary. And having someone that they know as their roommate can be great. So there are many different ways to look at it. Um, I don't want to get us too hung up on this, but I do think it's a fascinating thing. This whole roommate matching and um, I, and and the fact is, for parents out there listening and wondering, you know, what happens if my my daughter or son ends up with a terrible roommate, I mean, there's generally an opportunity to make a request for a roommate change. Uh, And at the risk of belaboring the point, I think you generally have to prove that it's a real issue, not just, well, we don't really, you know, she's not the type of person I want to hang out with. Um, I don't know if you guys have found anything differently or have anything other than that to add, but um, I can assure you that, you know. I I just think mm -hmm. the important thing, the important
3: message there is that If it isn't an ideal situation, that can be okay, too. That can be part of the the new, new college student experience. And certainly my daughter didn't have an ideal experience her first year, but she also learned quite a bit from from what transpired. So, um, and it did take it, eventually she was, uh, she and her roommate were switched, but it, it usually, it was something more extreme than just, oh, we don't hang out. We don't like each other much. You know, it, it was, exactly. it usually has to be some pretty extenuating circumstances, but again, it was, she wouldn't say that she regretted it because she learned a lot in the process. It didn't ruin her experience by any stretch.
2: Right. Which is great. And and of course, if it's ruining someone's experience, that's a really good reason to request the change and do things like that. But at the end, right. most kids are going to be fine, regardless of whether they love their roommate, hate them or somewhere in between. Um, so we have really only one minute before we have to take a break. Is there anything else we want to talk about on this front or um, or something else before we kind of take a break and come back to this whole question of transitioning to college? Maybe Kathy, is there anything specific or quick Yeah, that I mean, we could- I think
3: what we have touched on, and we'll probably touch on a little more in the next segment, is this whole balance between what you have your child do and what you do for them. So... Okay. And as much as possible, you want your child to be doing, doing things for themselves. And when we talk about mm-hmm. more paperwork, even the paperwork they have to complete, your instinct may be to do it for them, but it really is good for them to be doing it themselves. So... We can talk more about that certainly in the next segment.
2: Okay. Well, with that, actually, we're going to go right to break and we'll come back and uh, get right back to the conversation. So don't go away.
5: So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: And welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about making a smooth transition from high school to college and uh, on both an academic side and also on a financial side. And my guests, Kenan and Kathy, are still here. uh, And we're going to keep talking about this and actually there's something that's uh, from my own personal experience that I wanted to bring up and that was that um, before we submitted the paperwork s- saying that I was going to attend the school that um, of my choice my father sat me down and said to me you know this is going to cost us a lot of money it's going to require a lot of sacrifice on our part and on your part because I was earning money to help pay for it as well and he said my expectation is that you will have a minimum of a 3.0 and if you don't then you can come home and you can go to the local community college because uh, that's not good enough if you're not, if you're not sort of achieving at that level. And so Ken and I was curious what you think about um, that type of setting expectation for students and, and whether or not that's something you encourage parents to do.
4: Um, Yeah, I think that, you know, in our mind's eye, we have kind of a, a set of expectations for kids and, I know from, from you know, my own experience as well as, as others that are, that, um, that are parents of, of college kids that they often will kind of keep it only in their heads and they don't have those, yeah. those kinds of discussions. But one of my neighbors actually you know, was, I, I thought was, was great about it and said, you know what, the, the way that this is going to work is that if you have a 3.5 or above, we're going to take on 100% of the cost of college. If it's uh, 3.0 to 3.5, then we're going to split the, you know, the loans uh, 50-50. And if it's below a 3.0, you're carrying the load. Mm. So, you know, they're very explicit about, you know, what what their expectations were and what the costs were going to be for that student given different levels of performance. And so, you know, I, yep. um, so I think that that was, that was terrific. We did not do that. Um, you know, both my wife and I um, had pretty laissez-faire parents. Um, and, you know, we had been fairly strict with him about um, about his high school performance. And we've, we felt like, you know what, we need him to, to kind of take it from here. Um, and so I think every parent is going to be a little bit different about how they handle that. But I think having that conversation in the summer and being very clear with your spouse about how you're going to approach that with your kid is, is just very important conversations to have.
2: Yeah, and I think um, I think you're, that's a really great point. Di- kids are different. So with one kid, you might even have a different approach, right? And you have mm-hmm. a couple more going coming down the pike, and um, you mm-hmm. might let one kid take it from here, and another one, you might be pretty explicit because you know that if you don't lay it out, they may not hit it, and they'll think they're doing fine, and you might not agree. So I do think, as with anything, right, being explicit about your expectations, whether that's with your child or with your spouse or With someone, so everyone's on the same page. Um, And and Kathy, are there similar areas where you think it's really great to set boundaries and expectations as the as kids are going off to college? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think
3: one of the things to remember is that when they head off to college, even though you're probably paying the, the majority of the bill. Um, this is their first chance to be financially independent in terms of their day-to-day expenses and managing the expenses of being a college student. So summer is a great time to talk with your kids about how to budget the money that they do have. I mean, we used to tell... The college students that, you know, you think you don't need a budget because you don't have any money, but you do have some money. And what you have, you probably have to make last over the course of nine months, and you're going to have mm-hmm. to buy books in September and buy them again in February. And maybe you have a part-time job where money's coming in. So um, a great thing to do in the summer, I think, is start to establish some habits about um, your, your new college student understanding how they spend money and what they're spending on. So have them track expenses during the summer, whether it's going out for ice cream or pizza or movies or um, whatever it is that they're spending money on, and try to get them in the habit of doing that in the first couple months of school Um, because they need to try to figure out, okay, what are my expenses? What is it that I'm spending money on and how much am I going to need? Also, if they're working a summer job, setting expectations about how much you expect them to save You Mm -hmm. probably know what their hourly rate is and how many hours a week they're working. So you know what they're making um, and set some expectations about what they can save to be used toward those books and personal expenses during the school year.
2: Right Again, yeah, setting great expectations. And I also think if you've worked over the summer to earn, let's say, $2,000 and that's meant to be your spending money for the year, uh, I know more than a few people who have run through that kind of cash in a couple of months. (laughs) And now they're really in trouble because (laughs) they've got a whole year to get through. Um, I may have run through some money that I saved when I went abroad and then uh, when I came back, I had no spending money for the rest of the school year. It wasn't quite $2,000, but... I went through a lot of money very quickly. It's amazing how fast it can go, especially in a city. Well, um, I think, you know, kids
3: don't have experience, right? So sitting down with them and talking about, so what's a reasonable amount to spend
2: on pizza every month? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Kenan, you were going to say something, I think.
4: Yeah, and, and we had a similar experience that, um, you know, his freshman year, I mean, he was pretty much out of money by the end of October and had and <laughs> blown through a lot of that summer, you know, the summer savings. But I also think that there was a good learning experience to that too, whereas that, you know, we weren't going to go bail him out. And so, you know, you've got 50 bucks left in your, um, in your account. You've got to figure something out. And so mm-hmm. he got a coffee, um, a job at the coffee bar on, on campus. And this past year, his sophomore year, he actually came home with more money than he left with. Wow, so you know you can get they they do learn <laughs>
2: they do <laughs> so you
4: have to kind of set it up so that you know they can take some hard knocks in order to figure it out for themselves
2: and yeah. not only that, you're taking hard knocks while your food and your lodging is being provided for you, so if there's ever a time for them to mm-hmm. learn how to subsist on very little money, that's right. a great time to do it because you know they're at least going to be fed and uh, have shelter, which is good exactly um, exactly, yep, yeah, okay, so what about um you know, I have, uh, we talked a little before the the show and, and one thing that came up was, um, you know, talking about the social elements of college and things like partying and I hate to break it to parents out there, but every school does have a party scene of some kind unless it's a completely dry campus where there is literally the whole focus is not on, is on avoiding partying, but there is going to be some kind of a party scene typically or um, something going on in the social scene. And what kinds of conversations did you guys have with your kids or do you recommend that parents have with their kids? Um, And, you know, I don't know, Kenan or Kathy, which one of you wants to take that one. Maybe Kenan, how about you? You just sent someone off not that long ago. Sure.
4: Yeah, Um, I think those are are difficult conversations to to have, Um, and um, I think that the expectation is that, you know, at least from my, and this is I'm only speaking for myself, was that there is going to be, you know, parties that happen and things like that. And the primary message was just make sure that you're safe make sure that, you know, if if you drink too much or what have you, that you know what to do, you know who to call, et cetera, um, and just make sure that you kind of stay within that that safe zone. And so I think that was that was our, our primary kind of message to him, that, you know, you're going to experiment and things of that nature, and, and that's okay, but you just be safe about it and make sure that you're in a safe place when you're doing it. Um, and so... From my perspective, um, you know, and, and, <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I can't remember who uh, who said this, but I uh, said, so, you know, make sure that they pack their morals when they go off to college. Mm-hmm. And having those conversations about um, about what to do and, and, and some of the resources that are on campus, um, uh, if, they, if they need to find kind of a social set that's more like their thinking, um, that you can find those on campus and connect with those early. So if you're not if the kid's not a partier, then they find, you know, the kids who are, are not drinking on Friday night um, and connect with those kids pretty early. Whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, a social group that's set up or it may be something that, that they find a little bit more organically. But have them thinking about that pretty early on, I think, is, is important.
3: And to let them know that it's okay to change their social set. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for my daughter, she went to orientation and she met a group of girls who she thought she liked and she thought she was going to be hanging out with them. And in, and in fact, the first week or two of school, when it actually started a couple months later or a month later, she did hang out with them. But then after a while, she realized that no, this isn't this isn't right. And it was a little bit traumatic for her at first to realize that. Um, and then start to look for another social group. But to have that conversation that, you know what, you may meet some people who you think you like, and then it may not work that way. Um, So that, you know, part of going to college is figuring this out and figuring out what's important to you in a friendship and, and in what you do with your social set. So give them permission
2: to make changes too. Right, to not feel, I mean, again, college can represent a real fresh start. And even if you maybe start, one path, and then decide, oh, that's not the one I want to go down, and start a different one, that's okay yeah. um, for mm-hmm. sure. And actually, this brings up something that, um, that Kenan, you had made note of, which is all of these pre college. Um, events sometimes that colleges put on, like, I remember that my freshman year roommate had gone on a Knowles trip with some other students um, prior to starting at school, and so she came in with this whole group of people that she was already really tied into, um, which may Mm -hmm. have been one of the reasons why we didn't really connect, because I was brand spanking new. I didn't know anyone. Um, Do you think um, that those are worthwhile? Do you encourage students to do those, or what are your thoughts on those kinds of things?
4: Yeah, and I think, that, I think there is a lot of value in the, those types of programs, and I think it's for exactly the reasons that you just described, which is that it, it's, it's a time prior to, you know, to that, that moment when you're all arriving on campus and moving in to find people who um, have similar interests and, and socially connect. And you know you find this with with athletes where you know they're all there you know two, two weeks, maybe even a month earlier than everyone else, and you know they know their way around campus they have people that they're going to lunch with and, and breakfast with, et cetera, and so they've got that um, that core that they can um, that they can connect with already, and that just makes things very um very easy i think so even though it may be a canoe trip that you're not really thrilled about or a camping trip and you're not into camping. It's still I think a good idea to to give it a, a try and find people that that you can connect with and I think that one of the difficulties that you know that ryan my son had the the first um few weeks was just like who do you go to lunch with yeah and um and trying to find you know just just two people on your own hall that you could connect with and one of the difficulties that he had, and this was definitely not the ideal was that his freshman hall um was a mix of students so there's juniors seniors and, and sophomores on this hall now they already had their social set they already had people to go to, to lunch with so the few so, uh, uh, freshmen that were on the hall were kind of left scrambling um right. and so that was not the ideal but the, i think those programs prior to that you know give somebody to say you, know, you can text them and say hey let's go to lunch and, and off you go and and it just gives them that that prior standing that i think is really helpful Okay, great. So yeah, I would and, take those pretty seriously, even if it's not an activity that you're thrilled with.
2: Right. And maybe, you know, maybe it's just arriving a day or two early because you joined a club and they're gonna start with some early meetings. But anything that can mm-hmm. make um, what might be seem like a big environment, even if it's not a big school, feel a little smaller, I think can be beneficial. And you just brought something up that I'd love to ask you about, Kathy, and that is the whole you're texting people for lunch and stuff but what about uh texting mom and dad and <laughs> i've been reading a lot of articles about maybe there's over texting going on and parents who are used to kind of governing a huge chunk of their children's lives find it very hard to let go of that when they go off to college so how do you treat what's appropriate and and how do you start weaning yourself off of being in touch with your child every moment of the day and should you <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I think you should, but <laughs> I'd love to get your thoughts. Well, I think,
3: it's, I think it's all about expectations again. So I think that you and your child have to have to sit down and, and talk about what your expectations are. Is it that you're going to try to talk once a week and have a few texts in between? Um, uh, or, you know, wh- whatever works for your relationship. I would, again, encourage you to let your child experience this Um, and manage things, even when things are going wrong, don't try to solve things, try to tell them to find the resources. Because trust me, there are many, many resources on college campuses to help them with whatever problem they're having. Um, So it's it's an individual thing. I think Kenan and I were talking, Kenan, um, how was it that you you were communicating that Mm -hmm. seemed highly effective, which was a great idea, I think. Yeah.
4: Well, uh, what we did was we said, okay, in that initial semester, um, each Sunday night when you have some downtime, we're going to Skype, and, and even if it's just for ten minutes, just say hello and, and how are things going. And I think the the great thing about Skype and FaceTime is that you know if it's a text or an email or something like that, it's really hard to see how they're reacting to the questions that you're asking. Mm-hmm. And you know, my my son's kind of a, a closed kind of person. He's he's not he's not a super talkative kind of kid. And and so you know when you ask him questions to be able to visually see his face and how he's reacting was really helpful to kind of see how he's feeling, and um, and that's easily masked in a text or an email. So yeah. I would say in, at least initially to have a Skype call or or something like that so you can see face to face I think is really helpful. And I was surprised in that in initially we kept that weekly meeting and that, that weekly call. Um, and I thought after a week or two that, you know, you'd say, ah we don't, I don't need this anymore, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you in a month. Um, and they did, you know, the frequency did over the, the latter half of the semester kind of die down a little bit, and it was every two weeks or so. But, um, but I think initially just saying let's touch base every week just to see how things are going and see that face-to-face, I thought, was, was really important for us.
3: And can I, I just add to that, having the ahead? regular check-in? Very important, because otherwise, sometimes the only time you're getting called is when something's wrong, and that's not good for you as a parent.
2: <laughs> right. Right. It's true. <laughs> so
3: having a regular check-in means you'll hear the good and the bad, versus if you just are on call whenever they need you, you're probably only going to hear from them when something's not going well. Right. Which is not And that's right. just not good for you mentally, or emotionally, or any of those
2: things. Right. And, and I and would just add, in, oops, sorry, I can yeah, that, go. No, <laughs> the only thing I was, was going to add is
4: that with let me do this again. <laughs> um, with uh, electronics, um, one of the things that you just have to be careful of—that's very different, I think, from our experiences—is that um, kids aren't disconnecting from their high school group either as, as readily as, as we did. Because mm-hmm. you know, when my high school kids went off, you know, or my friends went off to college, maybe we called a couple times a semester, but we were we were living separate lives at that point, right, and connecting yep. once in a while they're constantly in contact with their high school friends um, and so it, it has this dual effect in that it makes it a little bit more difficult to branch out and find new friends on you know on your college campus where you are and it also has the double effect of everything seems great on their campus cuz all they're doing is showing you all the great stuff that's happening in their lives of
1: course. and so if it's
4: not going so well for you then as a student then you might think that oh I want to transfer because you know everything's great at Penn State it's not great here and it's sometimes that can cause some um, some difficulties as well. So just something for, for parents to be aware of. that That's a fundamental shift.
2: And I think we're coming to the end of the time that we have, but I think there are some really good mes- takeaway messages here. And for some parents listening, they might say, oh, my goodness, I could never go a whole week without talking to my child. And that's fine. So if you are particularly close, maybe for you it's scaling back from – giving your child a call in the morning to wake them up, texting them throughout the day, and talking to them before they go to sleep at night into uh, a call in the middle of the day where you check in, see how the day is going, everyone's doing well, and um, you go on your way. So there's a scaling back that's appropriate for you. And then there's also, and this has been in the news a little bit lately, um, but just how social media can affect especially young people, it affects us all. If you're on Facebook and you can see these amazing lives that it seems like everybody else leads, But you forget that you take those pictures when you're on vacation. But when you're going to the grocery store in your sweats and your hair is in a ponytail, you're not taking a picture then and posting it. You're only posting what looks great. Um, And Mm -hmm. so another another, uh, time probably to have a conversation with your child about... Maybe trying to disengage just a little bit and focus on this new group of people that they're with rather than, um, remaining so tied to the high school friends, um, and not mistaking what is on social media for real life and understanding the difference. And I think that's really important, um, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on the show today and sharing not only just your thoughts as professionals, but also your experiences as as parents. It's super helpful. And um, I know that everyone who's listening, who's about to make this transition, uh, got a lot of great tips. I know that I did. There are a few things already that I've marked down that I'm going to go talk about when I get home. Um, So I appreciate that. And um, next up, we mentioned or teased a little bit earlier that we were going to be talking about parent financing options and we are going to do that right after the break so don't go away.
5: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation.
2: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, in the previous two segments today, we've been th- talking about um, transitioning to college. We touched on some academics, some social, um, and some finance issues related to college. And I did promise a more in depth look at parent financing options. And so, as promised, Jean Mahan is here to guide us through the choices. Hi, Jean. Hi, Beth. How are you today? Um, good, thanks. And right but in the during the break, we were chatting and you were sharing um, a, something that happened in your own family around that whole too much texting between mom and daughter. And it was sort of a, the reverse of the parent being too engaged with their child and more a child sort of struggling to be a little bit more independent. And so before we dig into the parent financing piece, um, do you mind sharing that story that you no, shared with me? No, not at all. So
0: right. my daughter went off to college, and I was getting just a lot of texts every day, occasional phone calls, and, you know, I felt like a lot of the things that she was asking me are things that she really could deal with on her own, and so the year went by, and she came home for the summer, and before she went off to school for her sophomore year, I just sat her down, and I said, you know, I think that you're a really bright young woman, and I think you can make some really good choices if you just stop and think. And I don't think that you need to call me for every little thing. So why don't you start just, you know, taking a few seconds before you start texting just to think, do I really need mom's advice here or is this something that I can handle on my own? And I really think that was the beginning of her becoming more independent, um, the Text cut way back. The phone calls, even not even every day. Um, so it was really a great thing uh, because I, I could see her becoming more independent, and that for me was really an important part of the whole college experience. So right, one of the big reasons that you go away or that you send yeah. your child to yeah. go so away. So it can to work college. both ways. It can be parents texting too much or kids you know, kids not wanting to let go either, so.
2: Yep, I have definitely seen both. Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to the topic at hand, which is parent financing options. And Mm -hmm. um, in next week's show, we're actually gonna be talking about that first bill, when it arrives, taking a look at it, understanding it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it hasn't gotten here yet. But it isn't too early to start thinking about how you're going to pay for it. In fact, ideally, parents are already thinking about that, have been thinking about that for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you are going to be borrowing money, that's really what we're talking about today, parents who are going to be borrowing money to help pay for their child's college educations. And I guess let's start with what's, what's the first option and the first thing you encourage families to think about or parents to think about?
0: Well, I think the first thing I would have someone think about is what I consider the unsung hero of college finance, which is a payment plan. A lot of families aren't aware that these exist. Um, They think, well, I don't have the money in my savings account, therefore I have to borrow. But a payment plan actually might reduce or even eliminate your need to borrow. And what the plan is, is usually most schools have these. Um, and you can set up a plan where you uh, set up an account with the college or a company that they work with. The account setup fee might be anywhere between fifty and seventy-five dollars a year, and you agree to make a certain number of payments. Um, and you determine how much. So, for example, let's say you have a twenty-thousand-dollar balance on your um, on your child's account, and you think, well, over the course of the year, I think I can actually. Um, finance $5,000 or $10,000, and so you set up a plan with the school. You say, okay, we're going to finance $10,000. We're going to pay $1,000 a month, and there's no interest on those monthly payments. Um, right. So in just in that way, you've reduced your borrowing by 10000 and you know, it it makes it easier to budget over the course of the year. I I used these plans when my own kids were in school, and I just found, you know, it's just like the electric bill, the mortgage. It's just another payment that you make every month, but at the end of the year, it's done. Right. And so, you know, it's great because you, you get to choose how much you want to pay on the payment plan. So I find that most families that I talk to aren't aware of these. And I think they're really a great option to consider first, just to look over your budget and see if maybe you can just dig a little out of your budget every month to put towards a payment plan. So that's right, the first I, thing that I recommend. Okay. Great.
2: Then, and, uh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, you, you're, you're on it. You're going to the next thing, so I'm going to get out of the way because okay. you certainly know what you're talking about, and I definitely do not. And I'm taking notes again because okay, we good. may be financing a so, piece of well, it too. Well, you know where to
0: find me, Beth, if you need help. But That's true, um, that's true. <laughs> um, then a lot of parents start looking at what types of, of loan options they might have. And there are several out there. Um, a lot of parents use the federal Parent PLUS program. So it's like your child's student loan, your child's federal direct loan, but it's for a parent. Um, you, can, you do have to have a credit check, unlike your child's loan, so you go through, as long as your child has filed a FAFSA, you're eligible to apply for this loan. You do a credit check, and the money goes to the school and is credited to your child's account. Um, The interest rates for the upcoming school year were just announced the other day, and the parent plus loan rates have actually decreased from 7.21 this current year to 6.84 in the upcoming year. So that's a little bit of a decrease. Nice. Technically, the loan goes into repayment after the second disbursement, which usually occurs like in January or early February, but most families will ask for a deferment of payment so that they don't have to make payments while their child is in school. Um, and you know, the, the federal parent plus loan allows you to borrow up to the cost of attendance minus any financial aid that your child has already received. So if the school costs 50,000 and your child's received 25,000, you're eligible to borrow 25,000 to cover your child's education. Um, now
2: Is there anything to keep in mind when you're doing the Parent PLUS loans? I know that there are federal student loans as well. Um, Should parents be borrowing first and then having the student
0: borrow, or the reverse? I say the reverse. So, and the reason I say that is because your child, although they're limited in the amount they can borrow, for example, a freshman can only borrow $5,500 through the Federal Direct Loan Program, their interest rate is significantly lower than the parent. So in the upcoming school year, the student can borrow a $5,500 loan at 4.29% versus the parent loan interest rate of 6.84%. So for example, if you um, owe $10,000 and you're thinking, oh, as a parent, I should borrow that because I really don't want my child to take on any debt. Well, it doesn't really make sense for you to borrow $10,000 at 6.84 if your child can borrow more than half of that at 429 so I usually tell families to consider having their child borrow their maximum eligibility, and then they can just borrow the, the rest. Now, if they at some point down the road want to assist their child in the repayment of those loans, that's perfectly okay, um, but you always want to try to get the best deal you can, and you're, def- you're definitely going to get a better deal if your child is borrowing at a lower interest rate.
2: Absolutely, and Kenan shared that great story about a parent who said, this is our level of expectation for your performance, and Mm -hmm. if you hit it, we're going to pay for all those loans that we're taking Mm -hmm. out, and if not you're going to pay for half and we'll pay for half, or you may end up with all of them. And um, so there is nothing that says that just because you're asking the student to maximize their um, loan borrowing potential, that you ultimately need to saddle them with that debt. If you have the money or you know you will be able to get the money, you can always pay it off for them.
0: And I think Um, what families have to understand, too, is that um, an undergraduate student can only borrow $27,000 over four years which even at a public school is probably only a little more than a quarter of the total tuition over four years, tuition mm-hmm. fees and room and board. So really, you know, even if you couldn't help them, you, but you want them to have a little bit of skin in the game, it's only, you know, about 25% of the total cost. So if you were kicking in the rest, that's not very much. But again, a lot of um, families will try to help in some way, either making interest payments while the student is in school on their unsubsidized loans, or else help them when they're actually in repayment. Okay. What what about private loans that don't have anything to do with the federal government? Okay. So, you know, private loans are a whole different animal and really depends on who the borrower of the loan is. Many times I'll talk to parents who say, you know, I think that since my child wanted to go to the XYZ school... They really need to have more um, ownership of that, and that means that they need to take on more of the responsibility of paying for it. So oftentimes, they'll direct their child to a private loan. And prior to, say, 2009, before the economy really tanked, students could go out and get a private student loan on their own signature, no cosigner, you know. They don't Mm -hmm. have any credit, so they never got really great um, interest rates. Now, in order for a student to get a private loan, they're going to need a credit-worthy cosigner, and that's usually one of their parents. Um, It's important for parents to understand, though, that when they cosign on a loan for their child, they're as responsible for that loan as the child is. And so what if little Johnny or little Susie, you know, at the age of 23 just isn't making enough money or just can't make the payments anymore? Then that cosigner is going to be responsible. And even if they are making the payments in a timely way, that loan that you've co signed is still showing up on your credit report. So it's right. really important to think about the ramifications of co signing a loan for your child. Um, usually, even if you're a co signer, they're not getting the greatest interest rate available. You know, you often sometimes see these advertised at very low rates, but in my experience working in an aid office for 20 years, I rarely, if ever, saw anyone get that lowest interest rate, even with a co signer. Okay. So it's really important to think about that if they're variable rate loans, what's the cap? Is there a cap? Um, you know, if they're, if they're a fixed rate loan, are you comfortable with maybe an 8 to 10% interest rate for your child, you know, in repayment for 10 or 15 years? Right. Um, and they don't have the same types of deferment options, so if your child goes on to grad school, it may be possible that they're making payments while they're in school which could be really taxing for them. So you want to really read the fine print on those loans carefully and make sure you know exactly what you're in for going down the road. Is there a clause where you can be um, removed from the loan after the student makes a certain number of on-time payments? Um, parents can also get private loans, too, so under their own signature. But again, you know, don't have as many um, many of the same repayment options that PLUS loans and the student, federal student loans have.
2: Sure. Okay. So, very quickly, because we're running out of time, Uh uh, what about borrowing against your equity in your home? Is that something that you recommend,
0: uh, and something that you see a lot of parents do? I see a lot of parents do it. I I don't like to say I recommend things like this, but I, (laughs) I give parents a series of questions to ask themselves. You know, to see if this really is in their best interest. So, you know, a lot of families do like home equity loans because maybe they can get a fixed lower interest rate, and they can deduct all the interest on their tax return, which is not something that they're going to be able to do with a Parent PLUS loan. But what I usually ask families to consider, um, you know, if you are taking on additional loans right now, will you be able to make that increased monthly payment? You know, right now, there's not going to be any deferment on your mortgage. You've got to make that payment right now. How flexible is your lender? If you find yourself in any kind of financial difficulty and you need a lower monthly payment, you know, is your lender going to be flexible enough You know, with a Parent PLUS loan, there is an option for getting a lower monthly payment or extending the term. You know, if you've got a lot of equity out of your home and your employer relocates you to another part of the country where real estate prices are high, we have too much equity out of your home to afford a new one. So that's something you need to think about. And how stable is your job? So if you lost your job, would you be able to make those monthly payments? Gotcha. So those are some important things to consider when, you know, borrowing against your home that I would caution people to think about.
2: Great. Jean, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great advice here. Um, I hope parents are listening. Um, I want to thank you for being here and Kenan and Kathy as well. Um, A few weeks ago, we got a question um, because we asked you guys to send in your questions. We got a question about improving your odds at a particular school based on selecting a popular major in the uh, on the application, or maybe opting for something less common. And it's a question we get pretty frequently, and the answer is related to the much larger issue of tailoring the applicant to the college. And notice I said applicant and not application. So on next next week's show, we're going to address the specific, that specific question, but also tackle the larger issue in a segment about presenting your authentic self in an application. And also, if you or anyone you know is suffering from a severe case of senioritis, uh, don't miss our segment on understanding and handling the potential fallout, including a rescinded offer of admission. Um, and finally, we'll also come back to the first college tuition bill that we were Jean and I were talking about uh, a few minutes ago and walk you through how to understand the charges and what exactly you're paying for. Um, during last week's show, I mentioned that we would be doing an all callers sh- all callers show, but I didn't yet have a date. So tonight, I'd like to welcome our listeners to be our guests on air uh, and get your questions answered. And we're going to be answering questions about admissions. We're going to be answering questions about financial aid, about college finance in general. And that's going to happen uh, on Thursday, June 18th. So if you're interested in being a guest on that show, please shoot us an email at gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail. at uh, gmail. And don't forget to visit our archives. We have Tons of great stuff. Um, just last week, we talked about making last minute summer plans. There are other great segments on what it really means when a school is test optional, stuff like that. You can download the shows for free on iTunes. And we're here every Thursday at 4, 1 p.m. Pacific.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton.